0: We're going to look at, we're starting a new uh, series um, that for the summer, um, is looking at psalms. We've done this for the last few summers, and last year I believe we started at one, and we, we just were going through them in order. Um, and we when we finish the summer, we pick up where we left off last time. And so what we're at this morning is uh, up to Psalm number 24. Um, and I have really honestly grown to love this psalm as I have... Um, studied it, just a little tidbit uh, before we read it. This is, uh, some people think this is a psalm that commemorates the Ark of the Covenant being brought back uh, into uh, Jerusalem after it was captured by the Philistines, uh, the time of David. Uh, but it has been used as a worship psalm in many contexts during the Babylonian uh, captivity in israel 's history. Then the practice of Babylon was to uh, worship a different deity every single day of the week. And so what the exiles did is that they would take psalms, and they would have different psalms that they would recite every day of the week um, in the same pattern, but actually redirecting um, their attention to God. Um, and this psalm is uh, the one that they would say on Sunday. Um, so as we read it, we are, it's had many usages throughout the history of um, Christ's church. It's tradi- I find this a little ironic. It's traditionally the Ascension psalm, which was last week. So we were almost almost hit it right on, but not quite. Uh, But today being Pentecost, I think it actually will serve us um, quite well. Um, Let me go forward and um, let me go ahead and read it. Uh, Then I will pray for us and we will uh, jump right in. This is Psalm 24. This is God's Word. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this morning. And through your spirit, would you see us, would you have mercy upon us, and would you fill us with good hope in the joy that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm glad there are kids in here. Um, there's this, I'm going to look at this through the lens of Moana this morning. So we're going to start there, and we'll circle we'll circle around there to the end. Um, it, it is often children's movies, if you've not seen the movie. Um, I, I really like this movie. But there's just a funny way that children's movies have of saying the most profound things, uh, but in a way that um, kind of catches us off guard. And they're simple enough that they they hit somewhere uh, in all of us, you know, the condition that we all share. Um, But, you know, when the movie starts and the plot of the movie uh, is that there is a family uh, who lives in a very small world on a very small island, and according to their own knowledge, everything is right and everything is great. Uh, They get up one day, um, they go to bed the next day, and they do their thing. And they are living what first seemingly is a small and utopian world. But as the movie goes on, you start to learn a little bit more about the world that they're in and things are not exactly as they seem. That there are other motivating factors behind their life as to why they are living the way they are living. Uh, There's a dark shadow that is spreading across the land that is killing the fish. Um, And it turns out that what they are doing is they are actually huddling on this island out of fear of what is out there beyond the waves, and they have actually changed their own heritage and their own culture uh, in order to deal with that threat. They used to be seafarers, and now they are stayers. They used to have a relationship with, in the vast parts of the sea, and now they have shrunk their world down to a place where they only have a relationship with this one small place. And it's mostly because they are afraid. And I think this is a really profound point because there's a sense in which it is so easy to actually forget who we are and where we come from. And when we look at our lives, we get up every day, we go to bed, we have our little kingdoms, we have our little routines, we have our things to do, um, and we go about them. and, And someone might look into our lives and say that it's just fine. Like, this is just, this is a successful life. But in reality that we have actually, in a way to deal with the suffering that happens in life and the trials and the dangers that happen around us, we have taken who we are and who we have been made to be and we have shrunk it down to something that is manageable. And what we find out, just like the plot of the movie, that what seems manageable for a while is actually a slow and a steady shrinking further and further and further into ultimate demise. And I think this is why this psalm was written. So I, I really liked what, how one commentator um, uh, talked about this psalm. This is a psalm for the people of God to remember and love who they are and to love the vast calling um, that God has given them. It is meant to be rehearsed as a whole people just for this reason, because it is so easy for us to lose sight of who we are. And I think through that remembering, then it is an empowering psalm in order to go out and to live into the rest of the week in a fundamentally different way. Uh, so we're going to look at this these from these two angles. Is that It's a celebration and a remembering of what it means to be a part of the family of God. This is, uh, he's talking about the generation, those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Uh, that means all of us. That uh, this is a family business uh, that we are doing. And with that family becomes a great call, a great, a great amount of privilege and a great amount of responsibility. And we're going to take those um, two in kind. Uh, in the first place, this psalm is it is it just jumps right off the page the overwhelming nature of the privilege of what it means to belong to this people. Look how it starts in first one. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Um, it is this is a poem. And it is using words um, that are meant to elicit a response and certain feelings. And it is giving us this, these paradigms of the earth. This would be the cultivatable land and the fullness that is in it that is harking back to Genesis chapter 1. That is immediately setting us off for um, a vision, a fundamental view of life as if it is a realm that is made to flourish and it is made to grow. And not just in a little way, it's using words like fullness uh, the bigness of things, the vastness of this thing, and the world and those who dwell therein. This is all people and all places. So the world is a big thing. It is a full thing. It is a wonderful thing, and in its, in it's in a very fundamental way. But then look on in verse 2. Uh, we get a further clarify, clarifying um, um, aspect of this. For he, that is God, has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And if you remember, we've said this a few times, that when we're looking at seas and we're looking at rivers, uh, bodies of water, particularly in an ancient Near Eastern context, that there is this shadow of chaos that these things represent. The sea was a dangerous place. It was the place that was very unpredictable and that where even the most savvy uh, weren't always guaranteed to come back. There's a leviathan in the ocean. There are monsters that people don't understand. But look at the way the language is depicting this realm, this privileged realm that they live. Not only is it giving us these poetic you know, visions of vastness, but it's like God has taken these things, uh, these chaotic elements of what could be on earth, and he has found it and he has established it as a place that is suitably habitable. That there is order in it. It's like he, the, the, the poetic image is just like this sure uh, ground has been lifted up out of, the, out of the ocean. It's dependable. That in the midst of all of this chaos going on, at a very fundamental level, God has made a world that works. There is order in it. It is actually suitable for people to be there. And that chaos, even those places, are places that God owns that they aren't outside the realm of, of God's fear of control, but he has also developed this place that is very particularly suited for people. And then when we get there, then we have to look back at something that is a detail we might miss, we might miss when we first uh, read over it. So it's not capitalized in here, but often in your Bible, then this word Lord will be capitalized, L-O-R-D. Um, and whenever you see that, particularly in the Old Testament, then it is using the covenant name for God. Yahweh And so if you are an Israelite Who is singing this Just think about this The privileged stuff that is being Said to you right now That of the vastness of this world that you don't Understand it has a mystery and a wonder To it and yet great danger That God is the one who has established it; he has made it suitable for you But who is the one who has done it It is the very God Who has covenanted himself with you He is the one who redeemed you from slavery. He is the one who revealed to you His personal name. So it kind of gives this. So for the people of Israel, different from anyone else, it gives a whole different lens through which to view life. That life is not something random. It is not something chaotic. But it is a gift from the very one who has redeemed you. That your redeemer is also the creator. And so when we look at life at a very fundamental level, it is, it is a good thing by virtue of the fact that God has given it. Even dwelling in it is an opportunity to commune with God on a relational level because you know what his name is. And here, here's how this affects us. So we might say, I know that and I've believed that since I was a little kid. Uh, but this is what happens inside of our minds. Um, is, you know, you go through a day and it has been nothing but changing diapers from beginning to end. And then work bleeds into the weekend and then it starts again way too fast on the next day. And then there are just, there are bills and there are things on the car that keep piling up that are never ending. As, I mean, especially the thing about cars, you fix one, de- one thing and it gives you relief for a very small window of time. And then you're just waiting for the next time. And what can develop in our minds is a a rather hopeless and sinister view of what it means to live. And in a way, deep down we start asking, is this really worth it? I mean, we, we might say that on an ultimate level, we might just develop this sense in ourselves and like there is just no joy here. It's just a grind, and I just don't see that there is a real goodness and worth of getting up and doing every day. And there's a few ways that we can handle that. We can revert into hopelessness, and that defines our being. Um, in a much more uh, clever way, uh, we can kind of become the heroes of duty. Uh, we are the ones who are strong enough to numb ourselves enough on the inside that we will be do the ones who the thing that needs to be done, even though it's suffering. In a sense, we get used to the suffering and we, we take some core pride in, the way, in our ability to suffer more. Or we can develop in ourselves these little kingdoms of our own, that we start to have these questions, if this is not really, this is not really panning out for me all that well in life, it's just frustration, so I'm going to get joy in any way that I can, and anywhere I can get it. But this is a vastly different picture of what life is like if you are a member of the people of God. And I'm going to address the hardship in a second. But we do have to, when we think about the meaning of life, when we, especially in the face of when things are hard, that this is reminding us that we not only live in a place that is designed to be very wonderful and that we have an opportunity to commune with him every single day, but that we know his name. And we know that everything we have, it comes by virtue of him. We live as receivers of the blessing and the goodness of God. And then if you look down in here in, um, in verse 4, I believe it is. No, in verse 5. Uh, never mind all of these qualifications. We'll talk about them in just a second. But the, one, the generation of those who seek the, gospel, the, the face of the God of Jacob, that they will receive blessing from the Lord. This is a very holistic kind of blessing. Of course, it, inc- it, it includes salvation. It also includes everything we have in life. Everything we have comes as a gift. And so these are different lenses as we are reminded of the privilege of what it is to belong um, to this God, just in the place that we dwell and I'll just use a, just a small illustration. So I had a cousin. Uh, well, I still have a cousin. He's, he's a lot cooler than I am. He, he, for a while, was a tour guide in Alaska. Uh, he's not from Alaska. He just somehow moved up there and started giving tours and actually became really successful at it. Uh, but his secret to being a successful tour guide in Alaska was this. Inevitably, people would save their money, they would be excited, it's a wonderful, rugged place, they would get up there, and there's a lot more suffering than they had bargained for. So, I mean, you're outdoors, it's pretty rugged, it's, it's not always the most comfortable thing, there are real dangers and stuff like that, and that the people would inevitably start turning on themselves and grumbling, and their sense of joy would just plummet. And he just had this unique way to look at people and say... Hey, I know it's rough, it's Alaska, but remember where you are. You are currently in Alaska. This is what you were waiting for. This is a place on earth like no others. And just look up and remember where you are and remember what you were doing. And in just that little bit of remembering, then it actually helped people loosen up. And they said, okay, you're right, we're in Alaska. And so we're going to do the Alaska thing. Jesus is reminding us of something much more powerful than Alaska. We live in God's world. We live as beneficiaries of the God of the covenant, who made all things and who has dedicated himself to the well-being of his people. But we have to ask at that point, so, you know, let's stick with the Alaska metaphor here. So, not all is great in Alaska. I mean, there are real bears in Alaska. And there are real hardships that are actually dangerous. I mean, if you're being eaten by a bear and you think, you know what, I'm in Alaska. <laughs> Can't, you know, look on the bright side. Like, that's not that's not going to be all that reasonable, Right. But there's another element. Not only is there a, is that we live in a privileged dwelling place before God with privilege with blessing. But look at the way that He is described um, in a few different places. In verse five, that He'll receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. He is the God who is dedicated to the salvation of His people. And then read on down. Um, is that who is this in verse eight? Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. That God is characterizing himself not as just the giver, but also the defender of his people. Because we know that life is hard. We know that it is not supposed, it doesn't operate the way that we think it should a lot of the time. It involves a lot more futility and frustration. And it involves a whole lot more evil. But God is reminding his people, living in this privileged position, it also involves having God as a mighty warrior and a mighty defender who is dedicated to the protection of his people and his stuff. And here again, I think this is one of the more confusing points for us to internalize because in a lot of situations, we don't really feel like he is our defender, right? Um, It feels like no matter what, that he, no matter what my mindset towards him is it seems like the same stuff happens again and again. And there is some difficulty in this and there is some confusion for us, especially in the way that Jesus did uh, redeem us. And that look at the picture of the cross. I mean, the cross is an upside down picture of the redemption of of us, of what Jesus took on himself. There is a confusing way where suffering actually leads to salvation and where death actually leads to life. But this is something that God has taken on himself on our behalf. And if there is anything we know about the covenant relationship we have between us and God is that he has put his own body in between you and any of the evil that can be experienced. In this life. In absorbing us up into himself. And we, as we experience all of the suffering and frustration in life. We experience with him. But we experience in this, in this new upside down way. That the one who carries us. The one who surrounds us. Is the one who is raised uh, from the dead. And that there is no amount of death in him. That cannot lead to life in a much more bountiful proportion. And I just want to bring this down to us in several ways. Uh, When we just, again, what the the effect that this has um, on us in life. Um, We have real enemies in life and society, and we find ourselves unable to control them. We kind of like the people in Moana, we shrink our worlds down to try to build our own little kingdoms of safety. And yet we know deep down that, we can't do it. And so we stay awake at night in the fear and the anxiety of the things that could happen, of the things that are out of our control. And always there's this underlying voice of this that there is something wrong with us. And our, our vulnerability, our sense of futility, that there's something wrong. We're not good enough at managing life. We're not good enough at seeing the dangers. We're not good at saying the right things to the right people that are actually going to... Um, change them, and help them work in the way that we want. There's that voice of shame that comes in in the foreboding that we're in trouble because we're all on our own. But the voice, the message of this psalm for the people is that being in need of salvation from this God, it is not a new thing and it is not a fundamentally wrong thing either. That is what it means to be human. That is what this story is all about. This story is not a story of human accomplishment and us finding new clever ways or techniques to get life right. It has always been and always will be a story of salvation. God has dedicated himself to you in the blood of Christ for your salvation. And so what does that allow us to do with those voices is, you know what, that might be true. It might be true that I have no control over life. It might be good that I'm not even that good at life. It might be good that I make more of a mess in my relationships than I do help. And that's exactly why I'm here. That is exactly why I'm in the people of God, and that is exactly why I have the ability to gather together with his people and to sing and to have joy. Because God is my defender, and he has brought me in for the sake of my salvation. These are great, great privileges that come with just being in the family of God that disappear almost in an instant in our minds. But that's not it. And I want you to, there's another side to this that we need to reckon with, which um, comes up often in the psalm, is that just with a family, that the great privileges also come with great responsibilities. If you picture in our minds a, a young ruler who is coming to grips with, you know, a prince or a princess, who's coming to grips with the great privileges, who's grown up enjoying privileges their whole life, uh, but they're destined for something in particular. There's a point where they are being led to grow up to actually rule, That those privileges are there for the sake of something else, um, in addition to just the love and the benevolence of the kingdom. And we see the same thing here with God's people, just asking even us the question, so given that, how are you going to rule? And I think this means a few different things. You know, one is that this is a psalm that is bringing our attention back to the earth, We can think about just the stewardship of our own environment, that this is not all here just for our sake. And when you go rent an Airbnb, you don't immediately start rearranging the furniture and buying new furniture and redecorating. It's not your place. It is there to be enjoyed, and it's there to be enjoyed to the fullest, but to the extent that it actually honors um, the one who made it. This is the same thing for relationships in human society in the way we do business with each other, in the way we relate to each other, and that it is not about us. It is not fundamentally about us making our lives in the way that we want it, but we are given life as a gift. And this calling of the Lord is not that our name would be great, but that we and everyone else would sing these words, like lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, that the King of glory may come in, that He may make His dwelling place here in a way that he would be delighted and proud. But in the way that this comes through most clearly, or in these verses 3 through 6, where it's asking this question is that who is the one who can really stand up and take advantage of these privileges? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully... He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now on the surface, what it's looking like is this is a person who can only come before the Lord if they are morally squeaky clean. And that's not even remotely what this means. What this is talking about is that it is entirely possible to come before the Lord in a way that is double-minded. It is in a way like this. These clean hands are opposite to hands that are covered with blood, as the same phrase is mentioned often in Deuteronomy. So coming before the Lord for His benefits and yet doing violence um, to those around us. This is coming before the Lord in worship of Him and at the same time lifting up our soul to that which is false, to giving our lives, our hopes to something else who does not swear deceitfully. It's in these two ways. It is coming before in worship, double-minded of who, what we profess and how we actually act towards God and how we treat Him. And also, how we treat each other. Those are very much entangled up. Our relationships here in this space, they actually reflect what it means to hold on to the privileges of God. And there's something contradictory about looking to Him for grace and yet turning to each other and not offering any. This is a call for self-examination. And in a family like this, then every single Sunday, this would be the case to some degree, that we come before God and we know we need Him. We struggle with life, we are frustrated, and rightly, we are looking to Him for our salvation. And yet, in our heart, there is a grudge that is being held against somebody else. Whether it is a spouse, or whether it is somebody else who has offended us, And we know deep down we both want grace and we want them to fail at the same time. Or we want the privilege from God and we want to have the comfort and the pleasure of being well-liked and being well-secure financially and all of these other things. It's talking about a divided heart. And so in a practical way, then this is just asking us to look at that. And to look at, is what we profess consistent with the way that we treat other people? Which certainly, you know, implies for us that asking for forgiveness and repentance is a frequent thing that we would do. That is not something that keeps us out. It is the coming in here that reminds us of those things. But I want to end with this way. And again, I told you we were going to circle around um, to Moana here at the end, which I think is probably, is certainly, objectively, the most powerful scene um, in, in the whole movie. Um, kids, you have to remind me, you all remember what the, the bad guy's name is um, in Moana? Te Ka, right? Te Ka is a big monster and is the one who is spreading the shadow that is destroying everything um, in this little island uh, region. But as it turns out in the end of the movie, Moana recognizes Teka as something other than what is actually presenting. And that Teka is actually Tefiti, the goddess who gives life to the whole region, who makes everything flourish and everything flower. And her heart has been stolen away. And in her grief, in her mourning, in her rage at the injustice that has happened to her, she has become corrupted and she is becoming something that she is not. But Muana recognizes her, and in this great moment she just stops and starts to sing, I know who you are. And having the heart of Tafiti, she hands it back. And having her heart restored, she changes and she turns back into Tafiti. We know exactly what it is like to be Tekab. And if you feel that sense of just struggle coming into this place saying, I don't know that, this is, that I can do this. When's the last time your feelings were hurt? Was forgiveness easy to do at that time? No, it is brutally difficult. And it is not something that we always succeed at. But what happens with us, which is much more than is happening, Moana, it, is, it is a way that Jesus is looking at his people through Jesus and is saying, I know who you are. And this is why he came in the first place. He sees what he has designed and what he has designed to flourish, and he sees the corruption that makes him sad. But instead of just giving us back our own heart, instead of just taking away that woundedness so that we can revert to where we were, is that he actually gives us the spirit of Christ. Which this turns out to be a very appropriate psalm for us to look at on Pentecost. Because what the Holy Spirit does, his whole job is to point us towards Christ. Jesus gives us the very Spirit of Christ in all of his righteousness, in all of his power, in all of his delight in God, in all of his hope and glory, and he plants it right there in the wound in our hearts. And so as we go forward as part of the people of God... We retain the uniqueness and the creativity of how God made us, uniquely, all different from each other. And yet, with the righteousness and the power of Christ himself that so surpasses anything else that we could accomplish on our own. And so the solution here, it is to examine our hearts and to see the the inconsistencies. But you are going to see them and that is not going to be news to God. The solution is not just to try harder. The solution is through the, minister of the ministry of the Spirit who is in you is to actually turn your focus to Christ so that He is the sole focus. And in doing that, in that gift and with that power of the Holy Spirit working with you, then something happens inside of us. That our offenses aren't, we feel them and they hurt. But we have a hiding place and we have a power that they cannot touch. And when that happens, then something is different in the way that we do treat each other. So what I want to encourage us here, I do want to encourage us to think about our hearts and to lay them open before God. But I want to direct us all in one back Not as much to those things, but actually to the source of healing, being Jesus. And I'm going to leave us with these words from Hebrews chapter 10, which I really love. And this sums up this nature of privilege and responsibility really, really well. It says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, then let us draw near to him with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, we ask this morning jealously for the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of our, our, our hopelessness and our divisions among ourselves, but that you would guide our eyes not to despair, And not towards just self-pleasure to fix it. But that you would bring our eyes towards Christ. That we might find the freedom there of the assurance of grace and hope that he has. And that we might turn and face each other with a lightness and a hope and a love that is full and to be shared. In Jesus' name, amen.